Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we discussed the numerous factors that converged to create the ideal conditions for the Italian Renaissance, including politics, economy, and the patronage system, as well as a bit of an out-of-nowhere foray into musical theory. But let's face it, when you hear Renaissance, you think paintings. Good paintings, too, and naked more often than not. Well, today we're going to give you what you came for. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad. I've been enjoying this topic so far. Yeah, me too. Well, I, I came into it and I said at the outset of our last episode that uh, I was coming into it from an art history background. Yeah. But I also knew that there were, of course, major sort of political and economical uh, repercussions as well. But uh, I'm learning about stuff that I hadn't even considered. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're getting back into the painting stuff. That's awesome. what's next. Yay. I feel like... I can talk a bit. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I kind of save this for the second half, because it's like, how do you get people to come back on the Renaissance? Save the stuff. <laughs> save the stuff people know about. <laughs> yeah, basically. But painting, wow. Yep. Man, did it take off in the Rena- during the Renaissance. A little bit. How do you? How do we want to do this? Because you probably know at least as much as I do about this stuff. Yeah, I just don't know how to structure it. Probably, um, probably a lot more. How about I ask you about stuff and you talk about it? No, because you people, know what? Go for it. People probably won't know, but you do paint. I do paint. I mean, I'm not a fantastic artist, and you paint well enough to know the know what these techniques are. No, yeah, form. and that's just it. I, I'm kind of finding my own sort of style right now, but I, I understand this sort of where these masters came from like i i know some great works each of like Raphael, all the ninja turtle uh, artists um yeah i can't i can't write a symphony but i just played you that stuff on the melodica i'm always impressed by people who can play music <laughs> or understand <laughs> it at all i can't even listen to music well I, i'm just saying understanding and and doing are different things oh of course you, uh, of course and and i know you paint well enough that's not an issue here so i'm sure you can give us some insights <laughs> yeah 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 i hope so anyways i hope so I too <laughs> i hope i haven't sold my not oversold my knowledge here <laughs> okay well let's talk about painting in general yep at least leading up to the renaissance like almost entirely religious in nature because like who else bought paintings yep uh, other than that portraiture was now and then yeah yeah probably the biggest non-painting or non-religious uh application of painting but yeah, really, mostly you're, you're looking at churches. What you start getting in the Renaissance, which should be no surprise whatsoever after listening to that first half, mm-hmm. is you start getting some stuff based on Greek and Roman mythology. Right. Uh, now, this is all going to be privately sponsored mm-hmm. artworks. The church isn't going to, like, you're not going to get the Vatican coming to you and go like, hey, can you paint Birth of Venus for us? 
No. It's not going to happen. Yeah, they don't care. It's do specifically care. not their bag. They, they, in fact, probably discourage it. Yep. Yeah. There are a lot of naked people in these paintings, Miller. Oh, sure. I'm not sure how the church felt about that in general. Probably uh, not good. Well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a, as a percentage overall, I think these days people kind of oversell how much of the art was based on Greek and Roman mythology just because it was so different. You definitely have some standout examples of that. I mean, Botticelli would probably be the... Botticelli is a big one, and we brought up the birth of Venus. Um, yeah. Da Vinci, uh, so I mean, we can go back to what things were and what things kind of became. Sure. Uh, so we talked in our last episode about how Da Vinci kind of, in his spare time, and because he was an artist, delved into uh, studies of anatomy yeah. and so on. So we get things that are as um, simple as the sketch of the Vitruvian Man. Mm -hmm. So coming off of old religious artwork, things were fairly... Uh, almost cartoony looking they're very flat like people very flat and i mean we can get into perspective in a little bit and we will. but actually knowing what people looked like <laughs> and how they were built and what shapes they were made out of it went a long way yeah. suddenly you have you know you have paintings that are much less that feel much more like they have space like they have volume mm -hmm. so you have people that you know have muscles and have recognizable faces and you can look at a uh, a painting of like say it would be even religious still but say jesus and you could be that is recognizably jesus it's mm -hmm. not like a cartoon stick man with a beard you yeah know? <laughs> like well, and and a lot of the stuff that, that came before the renaissance was was so heavily reliant on symbology because of that on symbolism and that's absolutely true so you would have stuff like um famously bosch's uh garden of earthly delights okay um, I believe from the Gothic era, but I might be wrong on that. Uh, but it basically depicts like a bunch of people partying in like a proto-Eden type atmosphere. And there's like a few angels above them, but then underneath them is this sort of like hellscape. Okay. Uh, where you have all these demons and people being slain. But, you know, above them, there's a bunch of humans partying and generally being not very Christian. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and it, it's all very... You know, the angels have the halos, the demons have their, you know, beast faces and, mm -hmm. you know, they're tearing people's clothes off. It's all very, it's pretty violent. It's pretty graphic. Yeah. Um, and you have to stoop to those, you know, it, it's not supposed to be necessarily recognizable so much as you're supposed to look at it and say, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. And, I and want to not go to there. But but you want, you also want to understand what's going on in the painting on a... Like on an intellectual level, rather on rather than on an aesthetic level. Yeah, so you you understand it, mm -hmm. you get what's happening. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to look nice because it's not trying to. I mean, it's probably trying to, but they didn't have the techniques for this yet. Right, but that wasn't that that wasn't the key of it, right? Like that. Exactly. It's, it's not it's not being valued for for its aesthetics. It's being valued for. It's a it's a moral it's lesson moral, again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of that stuff just didn't matter to them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I. I think maybe like you you mentioned like realism and like the the sense of space that kind of came up out of the right the renaissance that might be a really good place to, to start, jump actually. into perspective yeah sure let's talk about perspective okay uh so basically before the renaissance as far as i know and i, I might be off here so correct mm -hmm. me if i'm wrong before the renaissance like we were saying everything was kind of flat um, and the way that they kind of tried to depict space in a painting as much as they could or as much as they ever tried to, mm -hmm. because, again, the aesthetic was not really their concern. Yeah. They would do what was called vertical perspective, okay. which was that if you're looking at a scene, yeah. if it's lower on the actual painting itself, it's closer to you. Sure. 
So you're looking at a landscape, things that are further away, you're generally going to look up a little bit at them because you're kind of looking up to the horizon, right. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Not that they had any concept of that, but... Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, and you would have people kind sense. of layered behind people who were lower than them. Right. It's very stadium seating way of looking at things. Yeah. I mean, not that he was the first person to do this, but during the Renaissance, a guy named uh, Piero della Francesca wrote a whole treatise on how to create perspective within a painting. Mm-hmm. And the there, there's two main techniques that we can talk about. Foreshortening and uh, vanishing point perspective. Oh, I hadn't even finished my... <laughs> oh, are you... Sorry. <laughs> sorry. You're talking about the... Yeah. Yeah, so there was the vertical perspective where you kind of... And actually kind of as a precursor to vanishing point perspective mm-hmm. uh, was something that uh, video gamers might be familiar with, isometric perspective, mm-hmm. which is the idea that things kind of go off on angles if you're not looking at them directly on. Right. But not realizing that they got smaller as they became further away. Yeah. So you would have uh, paintings of, say, people congregating outside of a cathedral, and you would have all these people stacked up, again, very flat. Mm -hmm. and slightly smaller in the back but what you would have is like one sort of broad facing like you're getting a completely dead on uh, face of the cathedral and then they would have like the nape of the cathedral or was like i don't know some section of it i forget the actual parts of the cathedral are called Nave is right uh oh great you would have it kind of coming towards where the viewer is supposed to be but it would be just as like it was parallel lines it was exactly as thick where it connected to the church as it was at the front yeah so you know if it existed in reality it would be widening slightly as it got there like Mm -hmm. it it was geometrically incorrect and it as such looks kind of crappy <laughs> like it looks like it's not constructed properly in three-dimensional space it, it almost looks like it's intentionally surrealist in some ways and it might be but i think that it's just a lack of technique oh, I, I agree i think I, I think it's absolutely a lack of technique it's mm-hmm. more that a lot of the things that surrealist paintings will play with in the 20th century is uh violating hearkening the back to these styles that, exactly yeah well violating the rules that we learned during the renaissance mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that brings us to vanishing point perspective, and this is the uh, this one's well known. It's the idea that something gets smaller as it gets further away from you, mm-hmm. um, and also that it sort of kind of gathers towards a focal point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so commonly, the example that's used is if you're standing in like a desert and you're looking down a highway. You you'd see the highway getting further away and eventually it fades into a point on the horizon or over the top of a hill or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if you have a fence alongside the highway that's, again, disappearing into the horizon, it's getting smaller as it's coming towards the same simple, single point. Yeah. And this gets played with a few different ways. There's like, uh, for example, two-point perspective, yep. which allows you to show like kind of an edge of a building or something like that and then have one face of it getting smaller in one direction while yep. the other face gets smaller in a different direction. Yep. Uh, so that allows you to, and that one in particular shows, it allows you to construct a space mm-hmm. where you can have sort of a three-dimensional thing that you're looking at kind of askew, not necessarily dead on. It gives you a lot more sort of capability. Right. We also started playing with the idea of uh, perspectives that were higher and lower than eye level. So we had worm's eye perspective, mm-hmm. where it's basically as if the camera, if we're looking at this like a, sure. a, a photograph, is on the floor and looking yeah. sort of up. And it's sort of just, it's the same as vanishing point perspective, except for that the point is below the painting itself. Sure. So everything's kind of focused down. Yeah. 
Uh, and then uh, there's an opposite bird's eye perspective where everything's kind of focused up. You're kind of looking down on it from above. Mm-hmm. Um, I think additionally at this period, and this might have been an older thing, but it became more sort of in vogue, uh, was uh, atmospheric perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just the idea that as you're outside, mm-hmm. for example, you don't see this one in like indoor scenes because there's not enough room. Yeah. But if this is like for like a landscape or a scene that's supposed to be outside with sort of items far in the background. Yeah. Uh, they become hazier and harder to see the further they are. So you see like things that are slightly like blue washes on top of them to show that they're far away, farther away. There's sky between us and them. Yeah, colors become more muted. Exactly. Uh, details kind of blur a little bit. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, the Mona Lisa is a, uh, has has some instance of this in the... In the right, so and we get into specific painting techniques that uh, the Mona Lisa heavily used. Uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation on this because it's got a weird... <laughs> combination of cause that's sfumato Mm -hmm. uh, sf (laughs) uh, which more or less means smoke or mist Uh, it's the idea of using like a a neutral tone or a gray tone uh, to kind of blur things together and so you get less brush strokes more of a atmospheric vibe from even things that are in close perspective to the viewer yeah it's a a smoother blend between the colors absolutely and so mona lisa is very much at the front of that painting and there's background details and that's probably a decent example of atmospheric perspective where Mm -hmm. you can barely tell that they're there because they're so far in the background um but even um the mona lisa herself or the 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 subject herself Mm -hmm. is uh yeah, if you look idea. around like the eyes in particular, you can see that things are looking kind of hazy around her whole face. And yeah, it... the, the detail around her eyes is actually amazing. The more I looked into this, it's, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that uh, is, is remarkable in contrast with that Gothic style painting. And I don't know if we said specifically Gothic is the kind of the, the general school right before the Renaissance. Um, at least in... I seem to remember going Baroque and then Gothic, but I don't remember exactly. Uh, Baroque would be later than Renaissance. Maybe I'm thinking of something else then. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I don't remember ninth grade art history, just tenth grade. <laughs> Anyways, I, I will double check that for the notes. I could be wrong as well. But in any case, a lot of the, a lot of that uh, Gothic painting that we're talking about with mm-hmm. the terrible perspective and the poor understanding of anatomy, there's also like really clearly delineated lines. Like there's, yes. you know, people are like, like I said, they're, they're cartoon figures, more or less. Like, a lot of them will have, like, be outlined in black to... Yeah, black or something dark. <laughs> just to just to show them to, you know... This is the edge of that person. From, yeah, just to separate them from the background. Yeah, like, because when you possible. don't have when you don't have the uh, perspective to be able to show that someone's in front of someone else, if you don't have colors delineating, this is where this person ends, and the person behind him begins, mm-hmm. they're just going to look like a mass of color. <laughs> yeah. Um... Do we want to talk about, while we're still on perspective, do we want to talk about foreshortening a little bit? Uh, sure. I don't have any great examples of that. <laughs> Here's one right here. here. Yeah. So foreshortening is often given as an example of uh, sort of an extreme perspective, where if you're looking at a subject up close, uh, the parts of, let's say, him that are closer to you are going to appear larger, and the parts of him that are obscured by that part are not going to be obscured by that part. Yeah, the, the painting we're looking at here is called The Lamentation of the Dead Christ, it's it's a it's a painting i, I mean I'll, I'll add a, a link and you should really just go look at it but it's a it's a painting of of essentially standing at the the foot of a bed uh where christ is laying dead he's got the holes in his hands and feet and all that mm-hmm. and it's set and it looks it looks fairly realistic given the time period oh, absolutely it's, it's yeah quite well done but if you take it and you measure it he's he's basically as tall as he is wide because of foreshortening which is that as stuff gets further away, it, you know, it 
gets smaller right as and well as the fact that when you're uh, at a very close angle to something uh, lines seem a lot shorter than they would be if you were facing it 90 degrees right and i mean if he were actually standing up at this height like you say he'd be as tall as he is wide his the, the length of his foot would be roughly the length of his torso <laughs> but none of this none of this seems odd in the context of the painting itself because it's done uh, a correct job of using foreshortening to sort of force you into the perspective of looking down the length of a bed from the end and absolutely and before people knew how to use foreshortening this would have been depicted as him either standing up with a bed behind him or his feet yeah. <laughs> in a bed yeah if like you couldn't have done this painting before then no and and trying to do so would have just looked just silly odd it would not have worked <laughs> yeah this one was used extensively actually on the sistine chapel ceiling yes um to to try and make the the paintings appear as normal as possible when you're looking up at a curved ceiling from many people up. from below yes <laughs> which is a nightmare which is not the way you typically view art yeah it's a nightmare and it's one of the more impressive but probably uh least mentioned uh features of the system oh yeah and i mean people will talk a lot about uh leonardo da vinci mm -hmm. in my book <laughs> michelangelo is the man of the renaissance yeah that's that's fair his 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 work on the sistine chapel is, is just absolutely incredible mm -hmm. um for in terms of vanishing point perspective, uh, we, I forgot to mention one really good example of that for single point perspective is right. um, the Last Supper by. Da Vinci. Yes, and yeah, you'll, that's you'll a great notice one. that uh, the the walls all kind of uh, bend inwards, and, mm -hmm. just and there's a, a doorway that kind of acts as the halo around the Christ figure. Yeah, um, another great example of how as we became. Uh, better at showing perspective and uh, depicting a space and generally improving the aesthetics of art mm -hmm. we didn't need to rely heavily on uh, he's got a yellow halo around his head we yep. can depict that in other ways that's that's the holy one yep. yeah in, in instead you can look at uh the way the work is composed in terms of what's most important you can work with other symbolism that takes a degree of detail to uh convey that you wouldn't have been able to with uh with earlier mm -hmm. um uh techniques just in, in general, they've really got a lot better at working with fine, realistic detail. And again, this, this harkens back somewhat to the secularism uh, angle of the Renaissance, right. namely that things do matter outside of the, the religious symbolism of a uh, um, composition. Right. And I think The Last Supper is actually a great way that it kind of ties in both because we have a lot of these modern techniques. Mm -hmm. We have stripping away of a lot of the uh, standard symbolism that you would see in a religious painting. Yeah, it's not an overtly like you're you're not being bashed over the head with that one. I think no. If you didn't know like the title and context of what was happening in this, mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily know that. Hey, that's Jesus. <laughs> hey, those are the apostles. That being said, if you have some sense of the the symbolism of the the Renaissance, it's it 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 very clearly tells you what's going on. Oh, it's absolutely. Just yeah, it's not as obvious to us as it would have been to someone living through this movement. Right. Yeah. You know, kind of living right in it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is this is the kind of stuff that can be developed when you're funding the arts to a degree where painters just get to paint and paint and paint, and there's lots of them in the same area, and they get to share ideas with each other and teach each other, um, and not have to worry about things like putting food on the table. Right, right, and I actually think that there's probably a few other techniques that came as a result of the abundance of the time, mm -hmm. where they were getting all this trade in and suddenly had access to more materials that they might not have been using before. Uh, so there's another one of these techniques that became very popular called, uh, again, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, a uh, cangiante. Don't know that one. 
uh oh this is a, this is an interesting one actually it, and it's something that has to do with being able to have a wider variety of colors uh available okay whereas i imagine that before this you had things that were painted in like reds and yellows and browns and maybe if you were lucky some greens or blues right <laughs> but you have what was available and you didn't necessarily have a lot of outside trade bringing in all these other dyes and stuff to make your paints out of well and sh- we should note that a lot of the availability of dyes and such are a result of trade with the east absolutely and and that's what i mean like they, they're because they're in this uh culture of abundance and they're at the they're at the hub of all this trade that's happening between uh asia and europe they have access to this sort of stuff and can kind of develop these techniques uh Kanjiante, if i'm again pronouncing that right mm-hmm. uh is the idea that uh if you don't have access to a specific hue you can use others to sort of take its place uh, so where you'll see instead of just things painted in like a flat green mm-hmm. or even like a shaded black and white green, you'll have like uh, bits where it kind of fades to yellow. Um, where this commonly gets used um, is in like showing white cloth, where if there's parts of it that are in shadow, it might appear slightly more blue than okay. like just say gray. Yeah. And it, that it kind of adds an element of realism, the way that we perceive these colors, than just being like, okay, here's the here's the hue, add white or add black, mm-hmm. right? What about uh, chiaroscuro? Chiaroscuro is a, a great one, and it, again, it's a it's a bigger. I don't want to say contrast because that's almost sparingly, <laughs> um, but uh, it's a big contrast from where we used to have things that were painted very flat, very you know we've got our yellow, our red, our black, our brown. If something's red, it's red, and here is red. Exactly. Uh, so chiaroscuro is very much. Uh, I think it literally translates to light and shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically means that we have uh, a lot of paintings are depicted as there's a heavy contrast between black and white and it kind of draws the eye to what you should be paying attention to what's important in this picture it's not just a mishmash of everything's red with splashes of yellow all over it and i have no idea what i should even be looking at Mm -hmm. it's things are very laid out we can shade very easily um again you see it a lot with the studies of uh, anatomy that are happening where you can actually see you know, where you had mentioned before, people had very definitive outlines around them. We don't need to do that anymore. No. Because now we can show, okay, because of the way the shadow's falling along the back of his arm here, we know that that's the back of his arm and his arm is ended. Yeah. We don't need to have a black outline saying that's the edge of his arm. So that's it. He's right there. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and from, from my understanding of it, at least, it seems like while uh, techniques like various types of perspective give the environment of the painting or even sfumato give the environment of the painting mm-hmm. uh some sort of realism in a sense of space uh chiaroscuro does as much to give the actual subject of the painting uh three-dimensionality yes it gives it it gives it, it it makes it feel like it's taking up three-dimensional space uh it makes it feel like it has mass and weight and isn't just a paper cutout <laughs> right. that's taped onto the front of this canvas right because there is i mean lighting i think is a bit more of a part of our our everyday lexicon these days just in terms of the um how common cameras are yeah which is a, a thing that everyone's again, got one in their like, pocket right now i guarantee it yeah it's it's one of those things that i i feel i feel weird pointing out that that's a that's a crazy thing but that's a crazy thing it's a crazy thing and uh the way that we talk about <laughs> I, I mean i hate to put this entirely on us but we might be the best generation to kind of point this out where uh, we're the ones who yeah. kind of grew up during this boom 
Hey man, and I, 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 I bought I, disposable cameras. I got them developed at the drugstore. Well, absolutely, yeah, I know. And I, I bought a, I bought an analog camera like uh, six months before digital cameras became widely available. <laughs> it cost me like two hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah, I'm like, oh my god, what a. <laughs> and then you look I, back and you're like, what a waste. But digital cameras back then were like five hundred bucks. Yeah, I had and a, everyone didn't have one on their phone. I had a digital camera that was just the the camera camera. Like it was not part of my phone. It was its mm-hmm. own. It was its own thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But I know very few people who own a camera anymore that are younger than, say, 30. Unless they're SLR. And then, yeah, of and course, then they're of serious course. about it. Yeah, yeah, unless they're actually serious about photography. But yeah, those um, are the exceptions. That's what I mean. <laughs> but I mean, even just in terms of people talking about like, oh, no, actually stand over there. The photo is going to turn out better. Or the way that we talk about analyzing film or critiquing film. We talk about the lighting and the, or the way that we use it. Right. Having conversations about the way better directors actually use light and dark to their advantage yeah is, is a thing that people i, I get a little nerdier about like uh like dps and cinematography yeah. than i think a lot of people would and maybe it's because i've got this sort of artistic background i don't think you necessarily need it though because i can't paint worth anything and i well, still get really into and, and that's what i mean like right? that's like but that's the area that i choose to focus on instead of others is what i'm getting sure at. No, no no that's fair mm-hmm. uh, but all, all of this is to say that like I, I think if you're living in the 1200s and you don't think about the way that, you know, whatever the light source is in this scene that you're painting falls upon in, your subject. Informs everything else. <laughs> I feel like I can probably forgive you on that one. Yeah. I get how you didn't come up with it. No, yeah. If I tried painting something right now, I'd probably do the same. Well, and it's hard to consider, but uh, in, a, in a, like, none of these things could, I think, exist on their own. If you don't have, like, vanishing point perspective and atmospheric perspective and all the things that come with it, mm-hmm. it's very hard to get that idea of three-dimensional well uh, if you had you know a poor understanding of anatomy but within this perspective it would look crazy <laughs> what you get with what you get with chiaroscuro uh devoid of all of these other things is uh woodblock prints yeah exactly which, or like li- um was it lithographs yeah yeah but th- there there were woodblock prints that used what could technically be considered chiaroscuros which is you know this this strong contrast between light and dark right and sometimes even used it fairly effectively but really it's only barely approaching what we would call illustration now right it's not giving a true sense of depth not the way that a, like a strong example of chiaroscuro can when you look at some of these renaissance masks well depth and shape and and contrast is really the important thing yeah it's mm-hmm. it's it's contrast but that contrast gets presence which is yes you know, just remarkable compared to stuff that was yeah and, and with woodblock printing it's hard to before. give shape yeah. Because it's very black or white and no, nothing in between. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. We're being able to play with a combination of uh, Fumato and uh, and uh, Chiaroscuro can yeah. give you a lot of great uh, depth and shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one I just wanted to mention quickly uh, was uh, another technique, which is basically Fumato, but with color, which was the uh, Unione is what it's called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Union. Okay. Uh, it's just basically, it's kind of the atmospheric perspective I was talking about, where instead of just using like somber tones or ochres or grays mm-hmm. to kind of give a smoky effect, it's kind of like a, a colorful version of the same thing. Okay. Interesting. So it was the idea that you could glaze something over with a translucent, and I, I do this in my paintings uh, most of the time. Uh, I've been working on a lot of landscape stuff recently mm-hmm. that has a very far depth of field. You're not painting a subject in the background that's 12 inches behind them. Right. So it's 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 a common technique, at least the way that I do it, which again, probably not 100% the best, so asterisk. Yeah. But it's a common technique to paint like a background as if it were right in front of you in its true colors. Mm-hmm. 
very like you know high up on the painting because as we learned before things that are further away are generally higher sure uh and then just paint a wash of blue over it and then paint the next foreground layer and then paint a wash of blue over it so so that you gradually get more and more sky between the viewer and the far background right so it it uh then you don't have to actually accurately choose the hues as they would be because of that distance you're simulating the the distance through the wash it's it's actually interesting because i'm I'm working on a painting for you actually (laughs) right now uh that is it's got no vanishing point perspective it's very much like there are four discrete layers yeah and you, you can tell that they're far apart from each other because of the space depicted between them from just washes of white and blue yeah this is this is way way off topic now, but that's actually really similar to the way that a lot of really early Disney animation worked. For yes, the and uh, coming from this knowledge as an art student, like I've become a much bigger Disney fan as a result. Honestly, oh, it's it's remarkable the way that they made that oh, stuff work. They, they you know the the opening scene of Bambi. There's something like five different layers all moving at different speeds rather yep. than having to actually animate the, the parallax. Uh, <laughs> yeah, parallax exactly. Where it kind it's, of gives you the uh, uh, idea that it's almost spinning like your perspective is spinning but two things are just moving or more things are just moving just in different directions different at different speeds, speeds. Yeah. yeah the the background is moving slower than the things that are closer to you mm-hmm. and it also saved them so much work oh yeah it looks better you it paint a few so cells better. and just kind of yeah <laughs> no it's it's interesting stuff but anyway we are way off topic um i don't think we can talk about painting in the renaissance without talking about the sistine chapel yes speaking Which, of patronage <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe you've heard of it yeah let's let's get one thing off uh off the table right away. Sure. Uh, Michelangelo was standing. He was not on his back. Yep. That's it, a very common myth about the Sistine Chapel is that he he, he painted it on his back. That is not true. Um, nope. And that is that is fresco too. Mm-hmm. That is not for people who don't know. Uh, fresco is not you painting on a surface. It's you mixing paint with plaster and making a wall out of it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's the the amount of technique that that must take is mind-boggling. I wouldn't even know where to start. Especially because Michelangelo didn't even consider himself a, a No, he was a sculptor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he basically Famously said, Michelangelo's David. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he basically said, "I don't think you want me. I'm not really a, a painter." And then created one of the greatest works of art of Yeah. ever. I, I think we don't really have to qualify that all that much. Um it's it's incredible. All of the things that we've been talking about you know, to some extent or another, kind of show up in this work of art. I mean, the, the even the, just the knowledge of anatomy that goes into it. Right. Um, I like just imagine the creation of Adam, but like with Gothic painting styles. Mm-hmm. It'd just be like some guy with like a mitten hand. Yeah, yeah. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and a weird face. <laughs> and a weird face. And one of them would have a halo. It's like, well, that's God. Yep. I didn't want to paint all the stuff behind it, so I painted a giant yellow circle around this guy. <laughs> Took up a third of the wall. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Can we get this done in no time? Yeah. It was real easy, actually. Yeah. And uh, actually, I was mentioning before the, uh, uh, which one was it? The Cangiante, mm-hmm. uh, where you had someone, uh, a color kind of fading into another color rather yeah. than being hued black or white, mm-hmm. or sorry, shaded black or white or tinted black or white. Lighter is tinted, darker is shaded. This was more common in frescoes because it became, you wouldn't be able to do what I was saying before where you paint a layer and then do something else over top of it. You had to make your color and put it in and you couldn't add layers to it later. Okay. Fresco's goddamn impossible. (laughs) I don't understand it. Yeah. It's totally beyond me and that dude's a genius. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an absolutely amazing work and and you look at it and it's, I don't know. There's a lot of these works where sometimes somebody will put, put one up and it's like, look at this weird thing that they painted badly in it. 
There's, there's just some wrong thing in there. There isn't a single thing I've seen on the Sistine Chapel. It might be there. I've never seen anyone pointed out. I'm sure there is, but I mean, it feels like at best, the person is just uninformed. <laughs> yeah. At worst, they're trolling. <laughs> Because no, they know what it is. <laughs> I, I, it's usually, it's usually a, a, a non-famous work from a not that famous Renaissance painter. Yeah, that just weren't that that skilled, is what I'm saying. No, the the stuff on the Sistine Chapel. I mean, other artists would just walk in there and and take notes. Basically, they, oh, yeah. it's it's seen as such a, a high watermark for uh, painting for art in the Renaissance that. Like even um, Da Vinci was uh, was trying to sneak in after hours. Who, by the way, did not get along with Michelangelo. Oh, no. Michelangelo was a really like a weird like paranoid. Yeah, everyone was out to get him. Well, Michelangelo was. <laughs> you get the idea that he's very reclusive, and yeah. and having to deal with patrons mm-hmm. kind of rubbed him the wrong way, especially oh, yeah, yeah. when the patron was the church. Yeah. <laughs> Like, well, hey, paint this religious imagery. Him into it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, he, he had things about Da Vinci and didn't want to let him in. And right. one of his assistants would like sneak him in after hours <laughs> to see the thing. And he had feuds with uh, Raphael as well, yep. who was working concurrently on uh, tapestries mm-hmm. that, that hang inside the Sistine Chapel, which they still have and like hang on special occasions, apparently. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I hadn't realized that before I was researching this, but that's kind of mind boggling. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Over the course of years, he stood on these these wood scaffolds and mm-hmm. craned his neck back and worked away at this thing and it's 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 amazing it, i don't know i i can't talk about well, it let's keep it going on and on about it. <laughs> I, I, yeah i don't know why i'm going on and on about it. there's there's a number of paintings on it that are just absolutely iconic i mean i think the creation of adam is one of the most yep. it, it's it, after the mona lisa one of the most reproduced and also one of the most parodied images in all of art history yeah i would say like the big three to come out of the renaissance are the last supper the mona lisa and the creation of adam mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah easily so yeah, I, I I don't know. Go go take a look at it. It's amazing. The anatomic detail is is fantastic. Revel in it and then realize that it's made out of painted plaster. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. He uses, as I said, a lot of these same techniques. The shading is is incredible. The fact that it looks normal when you're looking up yep. uh, at it at a curved ceiling is mind boggling because that's like, like that work? that's vanishing point perspective on a curved ceiling from yeah. below <laughs> it reminds me of one of those drawings that they do where if you take like a polished steel cylinder and put it in the yeah, middle, yeah. you can see a drawing mm-hmm. but like when you pull it away it's just like this abstract thing somehow i mean it's not quite that but it's pretty yeah close considering you... he's working in plaster on a ceiling i don't know too good um, don't have much more to say about that. I think we've probably enthused yeah, enough. Gushed. <laughs> there is also uh, sculpture and architecture that I suppose we could talk about. I suppose. Kind of, <laughs> kind of important, I guess. Both rooted very closely in that sort of fascination with Rome and Greece. Buildings were commissioned by the Signori, at basically because the the uh, Greek and Roman works were so popular, they wanted to seem like they were more classical, so they would commission buildings in classical style. Right. Here I just wrote columns ahoy. Yeah, that's that more or less boils it down. I was going to say, we got some columns and we got some pillars. <laughs> so what happened was there was this work by a guy called Vitruvius. Vitruvius was a Roman. And he talked about the various types of columns used in Roman architecture. Right. And they went, well, this guy seems to be a column expert. He wasn't. <laughs> he just had some stuff in columns in one of his works. Yep. But it was the only mention they had of columns. And they'd seen Roman ruins, obviously. They knew columns were involved yep that guy knows more than me he's an expert basically 
And so there was this whole thing about like the order in which you were supposed to use columns that really came exclusively from Vitruvius and not from Roman architecture. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was all about very like wide open, very light, very airy mm-hmm. um, buildings. Whereas for most of the Middle Ages, it was really about creating as much of a sense of, of mystery as possible, of mysticism. So when you look at churches that were being built before this, they were, you know, like really dark. And part of that is, is you know, the, the actual physical constraints of the architectural techniques that were available at the time. Right. But part of it was the atmosphere that they were trying to create for people using those spaces. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have pointed to this change in architecture as being somewhat reflective of the change in uh, attitude towards people's thinking about humanity in terms of both their sort of moral alignment and also their abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this more bright architecture representing, you know, maybe not automatically evil and sort of this wide open as being more of like a reflection of clarity of mind. Right. Um, I honestly don't know about uh, enough about architecture to comment on how much form is following function or vice versa in this case. Um, I imagine yeah. it's a little of a little b. It's hard to say. I got the impression that there was a lot of uh, architecture around this time that was kind of promoted towards the idea of community, Absolutely. creating community spaces. Yeah, and, and I that, imagine that it was used in that way then. Well, yeah, that, that pulls back to the whole idea of the signori trying to uh, sort of give back ra- rather than rule the city, kind of kind of protect the yeah. city. We're looking at a, at a father figure, yeah, not a patriarch. A Absolutely. And so, yeah, there is a lot of uh, encouragement of, of public spaces. But like, I mean, they're also looking back to uh, the classical period and going, okay, well, the forum is a very important part of civic life. Absolutely, at this point in yeah. Time. Uh, I was, say, I was trying to think of the word for it. I'm like, is it amphitheater? No, not quite. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So all of that kind of plays into it. But at this point, like the this idea of, yeah, I say <laughs> at this point, by about 1450 or so, this idea of humanism and theological secularism, I suppose, if, if you want to call it that, finding God in the secular, sure. had become popular enough that they actually had a, a pope come to the table in 1458, Pius II, who actually called himself a humanist, like he considered himself a humanist, which number one, gives you an idea of how far along this this philosophy has come. Right. Number two, gives you an idea of just how uh, religious of a philosophy it still was if a pope was okay saying like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a humanist. Yeah. Again, trying to keep that idea of how radical it is under control a little bit. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Elements of that. <laughs> But around this time, the Signoria are also starting to get so powerful that they're starting to influence the papacy a little bit. Yes. Because they can start paying off people like cardinals, and cardinals vote for popes. Mm-hmm. You also start getting this phenomenon of uh, popes dying and their nephew getting <laughs> recommended as their replacement. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, well, uh-huh. I mean... I mean... Yeah. Oops. <laughs> popes specifically the medicis were big on that but also the the borgias who were uh right. originally a spanish family mm-hmm. kind of played with the the puppet strings on the on the papacy a little bit a lot of uh when, when they when they moved back to rome or after they were in avignon they started rebuilding rome rome was still in ruins from when it had been destroyed by the goths yeah nobody bothered rebuilding it there was no reason to rebuild it every time it got rebuilt it got destroyed and burned down again yeah at a certain point you stop bothering it was a lost cause yeah so but there was such a there was such a, a resurgence of of classical ideals of classical classical art and architecture that they decided to you know what maybe let's spruce this place off also it is where the pope lives let's give him some better digs pope home so this is when the sistine chapel is actually like 
built. I mean, it wasn't as though it was already standing there and Michelangelo painted a ceiling on it. That was part of the construction process. <laughs> Absolutely. Also at this point in time, uh, St. Peter's Basilica is being rebuilt. It was a pretty tiny kind of nondescript basilica before this. The St. Peter's that we know today was built at this point in time. But yeah, there's there's plenty of architecture from the Renaissance period that you look at it and it looks very, very classical in in form. They're absolutely trying to replicate Roman styles. Now, as I said, architecture isn't really my thing. I don't have a lot more to say about it. Yeah, and neither do I. (laughs) Um, Suffice it to say that it's it's a complete change in aesthetic values from a couple hundred years before when you're looking at the the late medieval period where everything was very heavy and very dark. Right, Um, and we can start to see also, again, uh, an example of where we're getting sort of these modernist ideas these secular ideas kind of mingling with those of the uh, traditional church yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely how about sculptures i know a bit about them what about sculptures again lots of nudity all of a sudden yep whoops in fact donatello's I was david gonna say, here's where we get our fourth ninja turtle <laughs> how did you know donatello's david no yep. everyone thinks of michelangelo's david and for good reason oh my goodness that is a triumph yeah, of that's, sculpture. that's the one but it wasn't the first it wasn't the first donatello's, not that this is the first but donatello's david isn't the even the first donatello's david he, he actually nope. made two yep uh, he made one for the church um which is far more modest mm-hmm. and then the medici's probably and we're not actually entirely sure i believe it was yeah kind that's... of interesting but the the Best guess is that it was the Medici's that yeah. uh, commissioned it. The first David that Donatello made was out of marble, and he was wearing kind of armor, but it was modeled on like classical armor. It was Roman armor that right. he was wearing. Uh, the second David was cast out of bronze, mm-hmm. and he is wearing a hat and he is wearing boots. Yep, it's a good look. It's 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 very dashing. <laughs> um, I wouldn't get away with that. He's uh he's standing on the head of Goliath. Yep. And it's fairly realistic. Yeah. And what's interesting... Well, it's, about, a, it's a great first example. <laughs> in, in terms of being an early Renaissance sculpture, absolutely. Exactly. It pales in comparison to what comes later. Oh, of but course. <laughs> that's very unfair. Because yeah, this that's is not a, fair. <laughs> a, pe- people calling this a golden age are absolutely right in terms of the arts. The, the speed at which everything moves here is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. The second David by Donatello, the bronze uh, Donatello, it, or the bronze David, sorry, is the first freestanding male nude since the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century. So the that's pretty important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We went a good solid 500 years, or uh, sorry, good solid 1,000 years uh, being too hung up to build a, a freestanding nude statue. Yeah. So good work, Renaissance. Cool. <laughs> and I mean, it is, it is a, spe- a spectacular uh, sculpture in, in its own right. And a cool hat. And a cool hat. Um, <laughs> I don't have a ton to say about it, except that it absolutely 100% uh, inspired Michelangelo to do it. Oh, yeah. This was the Kickstarter. (laughs) Yeah. Donatello would have been 1440. About, again, there's not great information on it because I guess it must, it it was a little bit scandalous. Yeah. Well, Uh, and I mean, accounts vary, right? Like, we don't even know who commissioned it definitively. Like, it's kind of shrouded in mystery. That that tells you how much people were hung up about this. Yeah, because no one took, like, "Ah, I did it. It was me, which was the whole point of commissioning art at this phase. (laughs) Yeah, whereas Michelangelo's David in about 1500, Mm -hmm. everybody knows who did that one. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And, I mean, again, it's it's one of those things that it almost feels like we're starting to, at this point, like, for us, contemporarily, you almost take for granted a little bit how amazing this artwork is. Just because you've seen it all of your life, you're growing up with it, and it's like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that artists can do. Oh my goodness, that thing is realistic. Mm-hmm. 
it's crazy. Also really tall. Yep, and I think this was the one where Michelangelo was famously quoted, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that he was asked like how he was able to do that, and he's like, Michelangelo, or David was in the stone already. I just needed to chop away the, all the not David. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that, I, I think you're right. I think this is the right one. If it's not this one, it's uh, Moses. Uh, he's got a statue of Moses. Right, I, I want to say it's the David. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's David as well, but yeah, if, if, you're, if you're looking for a second best Michelangelo statue, which a lot of people probably couldn't even name, which tells you a lot about how good David is. Yeah. Uh, he has a statue of Moses that's actually, uh, it's it's amazing. It's incredible. Absolutely. That one I seem to remember being awestruck by, and I would have to go back, and a lot of what I was going to say here is going to be from entirely fractured memories. Moses? I believe that Moses was it's actually... I was, say, it, I was gonna say it was it was the hair and the beard. And I was he wearing clothes? Yes. Yeah, robes. like yeah, clothes, clothing, robes, fashioned out of marble. Yeah, and hair, like beautiful, perfectly natural. <laughs> it looks like wow. Now, one thing that I thought I'd mention while we're talking about statues is that it was in vogue to make pure white white marble statues. Right. <laughs> Completely clean. You know exactly what I'm about yeah, to say. Yeah. It's one of those facts that I love repeating. I know more and more people are becoming aware of it, but yep. it's still such a good one. But it's still one of your your did you knows. Did you know? They were replicating Greek and Roman statues, which are all white marble. But what they didn't realize... <laughs> Asterisk. <laughs> they thought they were. What they didn't realize is that the Greeks painted their statues in these bright, gaudy colors. Oh, yeah. And that it's only through, you know, these the passing of centuries, centuries. that all of this paint has worn off of these statues yeah all that's left is the bare marble and they thought oh this is so beautiful it's minimalist as pure as angelic it's uh minimal i love it it's 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 so clean i want to i want to replicate this exactly and so they did all of these things out of just pure marble and and (laughs) you try to picture what these roman statues must look like like a piece of clown makeup yeah they do recolorings of them all the time and it's just like ah really guys you ruined it Uh, it's one of these things where you find out about it and it's like finding out that dinosaurs had feathers you're just like i don't know yeah, i don't believe that right, i choose not no. to believe that yeah I, I, it's a fact and i just i, I dispute it there, there are certain times where i've wanted to take one of those photographs to michelangelo and see what he said but then i think that might be too cruel yeah that i no. think that might break the man <laughs> oh jeez. i think that's about all i have to say about statues as well i mean Again, just because I don't know a ton about it, all I can really say is that, again, the focus is on realism, right? Like yeah. Trying to make it look as lifelike as possible. And I mean, I encourage listeners to look up pictures of a lot of stuff that we're mentioning here. I'm going to try and leave links for a lot of the stuff in the notes, but I know a lot of people don't bother going there for the links anyways. Look it up <laughs> on your own time, if, even if you don't go. That's hey, fine. listen, just do it. Just do it. If you've never seen these things, if you're like, hmm, I don't quite remember what this looks like, go look. Well, and you'll typically like post uh, on your Facebook page with some new picture or something too, right? Yeah. I have no idea what I'm choosing. Yeah, there's, there's a plethora, right? We're literally talking about pictures. I mean, I think I think it might have to be the creation of Adam. I think it might have to be. But the, the problem is, it's like, is that too cliche? I'm being a renaissance Lean into it, man. It's a history but... podcast. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, I don't know what I'll put up. But yeah, the, this, the sculptures, again, you have to learn anatomy to sculpt that way. It shows a clear focus or a clear change of focus to actually understanding the the physical structure of the human form over just trying to construct something that is is uh, symbolically conveying a message. Yeah, and this is a great example of that too, where because we've got this new understanding of anatomy, um, we can create these things and have them not look terrifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah, some of the some of the boss reliefs in, in chapels and things like that, some of them look real good. Some of them... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, and, you know... 
we were saying that a lot of the focus uh, prior to this was on building a giant cathedral that would take like half a century to make and stuff like that. Yeah. Like you have to imagine you're probably not getting your, and we've said again earlier that the cream of the crop was rising to the top in this era. Yeah. Um, so we, we get a lot of these great guys who necessarily, you weren't necessarily getting all the best people making these, these statues and stuff before. And not only that, they didn't have great circumstances to work mm-hmm. or they didn't have the technique to do it well, even if they had all the time and mm-hmm. resources in the world. Yeah. And, and I mean, even counter to that, you had, people who were great in one field that it turned out that they were great in another and they never would have known if they hadn't been basically. Yeah, absolutely. And and we mentioned before, if if Michelangelo had been forced to focus entirely on sculpting, we still would have got the David. Well, he also worked on St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah. I mean, he also wasn't an architect and grumbled about that. Yeah. Have you seen St. Peter's Basilica? <laughs> well, that's just it, right? He's like, I'm a sculptor and kind of begrudgingly does all these other beautiful works. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like, he just rolled his eyes and made the creation of that. Ugh, fine. <laughs> Here I we go again. Wop, wop. Important paintings of Western <laughs> civilization. Not even caring. He wrote... I was picturing wearing sunglasses the whole time. He wrote a poem about how annoying it was to paint and how much his neck hurt. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, I think uh, I think we've covered all the art stuff, or at least the major stuff. Anyways. Oh, yeah, I think Certainly so. Certainly not all. I've talked about everything I want to talk about. Um, That's so why I, think, I came here. <laughs> I think this is a good place to take a break. And once we come back, everything's so, going so good. Let's figure out how uh, it starts going not so good. <laughs> Say, where it all went wrong. <laughs> we've got to figure out where it all went wrong. We'll okay. be right back. We're here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Yo. And everything's going so great for Italy. Yep. It's just so, so good. And we'll never, ever go down. How could it possibly go wrong at this point? How could anything go wrong? Well, they had it too good. They had to be taken down a peg. Yep. That's the short version. (laughs) They flew too close to the sun. A little bit. See, the first, you know, multiple decades of of the period we're talking about was like full-on warfare between the city-states. Right. They, They did not get along. To the point where the war between Florence and uh, Milan is considered one of the potential reasons by by one historian, at least, that there was so much uh, classical imagery in in the Renaissance. Uh, It was thought that it's possible that Florence, being comparatively politically free, Mm -hmm. compared itself to sort of the Roman Republic and the Greek Republics in terms of political ideals. Okay. Whereas they were comparing... Milan unfavorably as being a, a more despotic uh, society, as being like the the Roman Empire. So and we know how a... that ends, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> so they were looking at the the Roman Republic specifically, so the early Romans and the Greeks as the as the ideal to model because that that would endure, whereas the the empire would fall. And I mean, gotcha. I, I was just saying, there's a flavor of propaganda here. <laughs> it was a hundred percent. That that's the theory was it was propaganda. Yep. Whether or not that's true, I, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting theory. It's nice and neat. Yeah. yeah. I, I like it as a as an idea, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put any money on it. Not a ton of faith. Yeah. <laughs> and then in 1454, so this is just to give you an idea. This is a year after the printing press is invented. This is a year after all of the Byzantine scholars come uh, because of the fall of Constantinople. Right. And this is like right at the approximate end of the Black Death. So yeah. a lot of good things are happening all of a sudden. Sure, yeah. Something called the Peace of Lodi was uh, was negotiated between Milan, Florence, and Naples. Naples is basically the entire bottom third of the boot. Um, it was this, the kingdom of Naples, right? Yep. So 
I mean, between those three city-states, Naples and the, the papal states, they basically comprised Italy more or less at this point in time with some smaller powers here and there. Okay. So having Milan, Florence, and Naples at peace with each other, big deal. Yay. <laughs> and they basically had 40 years of uninterrupted prosperity and peace, and it was great. Yeah, man. It's it's funny what that can do. <laughs> it's, it's really useful, especially yeah. <laughs> when they're trying their hardest to go through a cultural revolution yes. and are extremely economically prosperous. That's that's a good recipe right there. And fantastic timing, as it turns out. Unfortunately, things start breaking down, as they always do after a little while. And the, the signori of uh, Milan, a guy named uh, Ludovico Sforza, he had some issues uh, with mainly Venice, actually, mm-hmm. who actually who wasn't part of that piece. Right. But he decided that the best way to get at Venice, who was becoming more and more pro- prosperous very quickly because they're right there on the coast. Right. And they're, yep. they're very well positioned to be economically... Uh, viable, whereas uh, Milan and uh, Florence are both further inland. Mm-hmm. Not that that had hurt them so far, but you know. He decided the best way to make this happen was to go to the King of France, uh, Charles VIII, who technically maybe had uh, some claim on uh, the throne for Naples. Okay. It was it was shaky at best. I was going to say, yeah. This is like a, one of those weird family tree things. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. In 1494, the King of Naples dies. Ah, um, uh, okay. <laughs> Ferdinand the first, and so Sforza goes to Charles, and he says, "Tell you what, we'll let you through. You should go take on Naples. Once you're done, yep. All we want for like clear passage. All we want is for you to give us a hand against Venice. We want to. We want to slow them down. Okay. We 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 want to be the preeminent economic power in northern Italy. Venice is getting too uppity. We don't like them. We want your help in taking Venice down. Sure." Because, I mean, these city-states don't have huge militaries, right? Really, they're depending yeah. on mercenaries for the most part. They can afford to hire them. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being a big part of the the family's power, right? Is that it's often the families that are paying the mercenaries, not necessarily like the government of the I city gotcha. state. I gotcha, yeah, yeah. Right? The now, they're doing side. it as a civic service, ostensibly. Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of. That's, that's mm-hmm. a great way to put it. You know, I mean, so, so much of what the Signore did was had two purposes oh yeah you know that that's just kind of how they oh operate. sure yeah i mean central to the concept of signore yes they are giving to the community but also self-serving <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely charles thought you know what this seems like a bit of a pain but he may have been considering a crusade against the ottomans at this point in time it had been 40 years or so since they'd taken uh constantinople right. it wasn't funny anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah it still uh, hurts yeah, I mean, it took that long to kind of admit to themselves that it was really over, especially because 1453, everyone fled. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they, yes, they fled the city itself, but for decades after, people were still fighting with uh, the Ottomans trying to yeah. figure out what exactly was going to happen in that area. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion right in 1453 that everything was over. So, you know, we look back now and say, like, yep, yeah, that was it. That was the crux, yeah. But it's not like. It's not like the, uh, you know, the, the remaining royal family just went, well, we're done here, I guess. Yeah, no. <laughs> It'll live a quiet pastoral life. Exactly. Well, off the, the sheep. <laughs> but yeah, by, by 1494, it had been going on long enough. They were kind of done with the whole thing. And he figured, you know what? If I can take the Ottomans, then I get a slice of what used to be the Byzantine Empire. That's pretty good for France. Yeah, absolutely. And besides, he kind of wanted a slice of the Italian pie. 
well, it's, it, really the pie looks delicious guy. from here. <laughs> and he probably was never going to get a better opportunity than both a somewhat shaky claim to a throne. Yeah, and a fairly major city-state saying, here you go. Pretty much. <laughs> Do the thing. So the first thing that Charles did upon entering Italy was invade every single other city-state on his way through to Naples. Yeah, okay. Cool plan, guy. He went up against Florence and, you know, laid siege to the place, and it went real bad for Florence. Yeah, I can imagine. We were not expecting to fight France today. As we've been saying, is basically the main driving force behind uh, the entire Renaissance and the seat of the Medici family. It's kind of a big deal at this point in Italy. (laughs) Basically what happened when he invaded was that the people themselves expelled the Medicis. And here's why. Mm. I know, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? There was a Dominican friar named Girolamo Savonarola. And Savonarola was not only a friar, but also a self-proclaimed prophet. Sure. And in around 1492, he started preaching of the coming of of a divine scourge that would punish Florentians for, or sorry, Florentines, for this uh, secular hedonistic lifestyle that they say for their opulence (laughs) stop me if you've heard this one before and then within like less than two (laughs) years charles comes down and he's like yo i'm putting you under siege (laughs) nailed it and so Ronarola was probably like wait really oh god but he basically went and publicly said i told you i told you this was coming drops the mic and everyone like went wow we should listen to this guy yep he knows what's up those bow before him and they put him in power. Of course they did. Of course they did. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> He's a soothsayer. They expelled Piero de' Medici, put Savonarola in power, and... Oh, they turned on him that quick, huh? Well, I mean, they were about to be destroyed. <laughs> of what course they I said did. On this... Yeah, and I mean, what from I all they know, it's divine scourge. <laughs> what have I said about city sieges and breaking sieges on this show? Yeah. Probably the worst place on earth to be. Yes. Inside a sacked city. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of looking to not have that happen. Yeah, I And so they were like, argue. please help us out here, Savonarola. What are we going to do? And Savonarola goes to Charles, and he talks him out of invading the city. Sorry? <laughs> he convinces Charles to spare the city. Wow. How? <laughs> and Charles was like, you know what? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. I got a job to do. I got to get back to you. <laughs> this is why I came here at all. <laughs> I mean, I'm certain they paid him off. Oh, yeah. Of course. But he didn't sack the city. So win-win. So... Ish. <laughs> Everyone in Florence is like, yeah, this guy's the best. <laughs> yeah, that's not so bad. Keep him on. Savonarola. And He's so- on a roller. Yeah, it works. I'll Boo. take it. No, don't take that. I'm so nope. sorry. Too late. It's oh, on the Oh, God. Phil, ignore this. I know you're listening. <laughs> I didn't just make a pun. <laughs> Cut this part out. <laughs> Please keep saying things that I'm going to keep in the yeah, I, I know you will. I'm, I'm just digging myself a cool hole. It's the coolest. Savonarola goes, great, now that I'm in charge and everyone's safe, we are going to clean up this city. It is the worst right now. And have something called the Bonfire of the Vanities. Make Florence great again. The Bonfire of the Vanities. I've heard of this. All they do is throw on great works of art that we will never ever see now. Yep. And it is horrifying on like nearly a Library of Alexandria level to think about the things that were destroyed over the course of several weeks of them just burning great works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He it hurts. It all- because as much as we've talked about all that, we, we talked like in the last half hour 
about all the amazing stuff that came out and think about how much more could have been there that we don't know about. <laughs> we have no idea. Yeah, it's not even that we know about it and it just doesn't exist anymore because how could we know about it? <laughs> yeah, other than contemporary writings, and I'm sure there are people whose lives are going through these writings mm -hmm. and trying to figure out if there's something lost. that was missed. Yeah. And I, I guarantee you that list is fairly long and we just have no idea other yeah. than a, a description on paper. Well, I mean, we nothing. can, we can hope that maybe there's some scrap of something, <laughs> yeah. but that's not going to be much. No, at, at this point in time, the, the chances are slim. I mean, you never know. Somebody could dig up some buried cash, I suppose. Oh, sure. Maybe. Yeah. 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 But I mean, Savonarola also wasn't in power all that long, so I have a feeling anyone that hid anything probably came back for it. Yeah, that's fair. So, but <clears throat> you never know. These two things happening at the same time, the Italian Wars, which is a, a, a decades-long series of wars in Italy, right. basically carving the whole thing up that begins in 1494, mm -hmm. and Savonarola's essential cultural neutering of the city of Florence was a really bad one-two punch. Yeah. Um, a lot of... <laughs> you don't say. Undoing, undoing all the good that was done. Well, a lot of really important artists decided to just leave Italy. Of course like, they oh, did. <laughs> hey, this place sucks now. Screw this. <laughs> I'm not sticking around for this. Leonardo da Vinci moved to France. Yeah. He lived in France. That's not where he belongs. Listen, I, I don't have anything against France particularly, but the idea of... Da Vinci being anywhere other than one of the major city-states in Italy during the Renaissance. It's jarring. It's a really, it's kind of an upsetting idea. It's, it's up there with the painted Greek statues and the dinosaurs and feathers. It doesn't sound right. It just sounds wrong and I kind of ignore it a lot of the time. Now, Savonarola himself, yeah, as I said, he didn't really last all that long. He kind of got a little too big for his britches. Um, sure. And was... <laughs> as far as he knows, he's literally speaking the word of God. <laughs> well... See, here's the thing. He, he was excommunicated in 1497 and subjected to Inquisition by the Catholic Church. Okay, so... All he right. Was talking, <laughs> he was talking a lot of stuff that he probably shouldn't have been, specifically about denying the tradition of the Catholic Church in favor of reading of the scriptures, oh. which is a heretical idea at this point in time. He went too far. <laughs> yeah. Also, being convinced of your own prophetic ability, or at least telling everyone that you're convinced of your own prophetic ability, is a good way to get looked into by the church. Yep. He confessed to lying about it, and then he recanted, and then he confessed again. So, I mean... <laughs> yeah, so we can't trust him at all anymore. Cool. Pretty much. Well, he was hanged in 1498, so... Yeah, that was that pretty was, quick. That was the end of that. The Medici's were back in Florence by 1512, so I mean... Yeah, but at that point, but it what's left? Of, yeah, it ended like the golden era of yeah. Medici uh, influence in Florence. Nothing was quite the same again. No, not exactly. And I mean, really, the, the Italian wars, I think, are the best place to kind of call an end to the Renaissance. Just because, like, the, if nothing else, I understand that this is really not that academic a way of putting it, but the spell is broken. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it kind of petered out. <laughs> and a lot of the things that made Florence the ideal place for the Renaissance, <laughs> we're gone within a few years. <laughs> well, left with it, left for the same version, the same reasons. I mean, or rather, the, the Renaissance ended for the same reason yeah, because they well, left. Well, as you said uh, very early on in this subject, uh, at the beginning of I think the last episode, is that because of all these influences externally and. Uh, Internally, it was kind of a perfect storm that allowed this to take place. Well, humanism, but then as soon as you take away a, a few of those ingredients, <laughs> humanism was fertile soil for a lot of the ideas that led to this this artwork that went out the, the door with Savonarola. Right. The the wealth necessary for 
supporting patrons kind of goes out the door when you go to war and need all that wealth to pay for mercenaries to protect you from the French and then later the Spanish and then later the Germans because everybody tried to get into Italy. Well, and I imagine the perceived and actual wealth of the Medicis would have been severely diminished as well. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Plus all your all your great artists have kind of fled. <laughs> well, that's the thing. They were no longer concentrated in these few very tiny places. Yeah, and I mean, the ones that are still around don't necessarily want to be there too much anymore. <laughs> Not only that, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on like in the world at this point in time mm-hmm. that is not necessarily counter to renaissance ideals but certainly challenging to everyone's worldview okay not least of which would be the discovery of the new world that's a big one yeah in 1492 that was seems important yeah i I was gonna say we're coming up on that aren't we (laughs) we're in the 1490s and and i mean they they didn't realize what it was for a few years but it didn't take them that long to figure out what it was yeah much Uh, bigger than expected columbus was a crackpot and the fact that he died thinking that he had actually been to asia is Sad and also dumb. Another I, subject. <laughs> oh man, don't get me started on Columbus. That's gonna be <laughs> say, probably that's gonna not be an episode, good for a subject. Be like one long rant about yeah, I was gonna say. all of my feelings yeah. about Columbus. Here's what Columbus does when he gets to the New World. Columbus sails up. All the people on Hispaniola, Hispaniola are like, "Hello, welcome." He's like, "I think you'd make a good slave. Come back with me." Yep. <laughs> genocide <laughs> real cool guy good work uh he's got a freaking day named after him in the states rename that day keep the holiday rename it <laughs> invent more holidays invent there's a better <laughs> thing that you could celebrate i guarantee you could find one. Oh, it's not hard it's not that, it's not hard at all hey man they put harriet tubman on the 20 that's awesome I'm maybe so maybe we're that. on maybe we're heading in the right direction i'm so excited maybe. about that i mean i don't know I don't want to get too much into it, but you know, Listen, one step forward, two steps back in that country. I, I think, I think, in, I think, in terms of of stuff like this, I think a, a lot of people get hesitant to get excited. I think that token gestures are they are just that, but they are also necessary in order to get around to anything approaching real societal change. I like one of the reasons that they kept Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, because of the musical. That's awesome. <laughs> I. I'd rather keep Hamilton, though, than... Uh, oh, of course. Way but, off topic, anyway. Yeah, way off topic. <laughs> you cut that Harriet Tubman, <laughs> real cool lady. Yeah. There are people right now who are just hearing about Harriet Tubman for the first time that are desperately trying to find a reason not to put her on the 20 just because they're trying to back up their own personal prejudices and they're having a hard time finding anything, and I think that's super cool. Yeah, that you know what? That's a great point. I'm not, I hadn't considered that. I'm not... I'm not advocating for perfection in historical figures or, or role models because no. that's uh, an impossible idea. Because humans are humans. <laughs> but, I mean, of the things that you can find to say uh, anything bad about Harriet Tubman, like, there's nothing, there's nothing damning. No. She was, a, she was a cool lady who helped a lot of people find freedom, and that's, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Anyways, enough about Harriet Tubman. <laughs> yeah, the discovery of the New World. I mean, this was problematic for a lot of reasons, not least of which was... The Bible doesn't say anything about a new world. Nope. This is just like another strike against looking only to the Bible for your knowledge. All of the information, world. yes. This is another like this is just pushing everything further down that secular route, which that's that's one of the things that kind of stuck around out of the the Renaissance. That's probably I was going to say for the better. I guess that's a bit of a, a value judgment, but it certainly pushes us closer to the modern world that we're that we're uh, comfortable with. And, yeah, let's put it that way. But yeah, the, the, the New World not being in the Bible also cre- creates big problems of surrounding what are Native Americans. Well, yeah, and 
completely different from anything that, or maybe not completely, but very different from anything that they had experienced. Well, the, the conversation was, do they have souls? Yeah. Which is a weird thing to discuss, but I mean, when you, you know, to give people from then a little bit of credit, that was, they, they were encountering people who did not fit into their uh, religious tradition. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 great chain of, the great chain of being. Yep. We don't know where they sit on there. Well, sure. And because I mean, there's always places to add things in. It's just the movement up and down it that seems immutable to them in a lot of ways. Yeah, and if they're significantly different from you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't consider them human. <laughs> yeah. It, well, yeah. That's that's the thing. It, further further to that, there's uh, there was a tradition that the three sons of Noah are the ancestors of the three continents. Yes. Asia, Africa, and Europe. Mm-hmm. So if everyone's descended from those three people, yeah. how did people get Who over there? these people? Yeah. How, how that happened? How these? So that, that was a significant crisis for, certainly for the church, but also, I mean, it's hard to imagine like getting the news one day that, yeah, we found a new continent. Yeah. It was certainly boggle of mine now. It's, um, it's a massive paradigm shift and they were kind of dealing with that. Well, I mean, that kind of... There are parallels now-ish, or perhaps in the future, which is to say, like, hey, if we're going to send a solar sail to Alpha Centauri yeah. and possibly discover life on another planet, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's a new thing we haven't had to consider before, really. Yeah. And, and, and someday we're going to get that again. And, you know, there's, there's that whole cliche of like born too late to explore the seas too early to explore the stars yeah where it's kind of like yeah right now i don't know that we're gonna discover much that has the same sort of impact uh but you know fingers crossed yeah it'd certainly be cool <laughs> hopefully in my lifetime yeah. during these italian wars rome was resacked by spain and the Holy <laughs> Roman empire man that's that you just can't catch a break which not recently <laughs> well it, it significantly diminished the the temporal role of the papacy, right? Because for throughout the Renaissance, moving back to Rome, a lot of these popes who are Medici's or Borgias, or uh, they had significant like military power. They were warrior popes, right? And so the papal states themselves had a pretty sizable army. And if you were a Medici mm-hmm. and you also got one of your own on the throne as the pope, yep. then you have papal backing on just about anything you want to do militarily true yep right in your pocket the sacking of rome basically wiped out the majority of that seat um, yeah 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 the, the well like the natively um italian papal state army so i mean moving forward you would get into the whole swiss guard thing okay but because they they started helping out uh, or or supporting the pope during this time because essentially he didn't really have much of an army left uh, in fact um uh, Michelangelo famously uh, designed the the uniform for the Swiss Guard that they still. Oh my wear. god, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a joke. I hope. I think that there's a bit of that. Yeah. He must have, right? I I wouldn't put it past him. It seems like something he would do. Another thing that's really hard to keep in mind <laughs> is that the guy who painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling yep. also decided that those colors went together real good. Well, that's why I think it's probably a joke. <laughs> Like, hey, you look like clowns forever. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yep. You're stuck with it. I'm Michelangelo. Deal with it. Yeah, maybe you heard of me. But with all these wars going on throughout the, the peninsula, it basically precluded the idea of it, uh, of Italy um, coalescing into an entire country. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It just wasn't going to happen anymore because 
throughout these wars, these alliances kept shifting. Yeah, I mean, the first thing, reforming. Yeah, the first thing that happened was that you know Venice and Florence and Naples uh, united as a front against Milan and France to try right. and keep France out of the the Italian peninsula, mm-hmm. and then just you know more and more players keep getting involved, and then alliances shift, and like it really doesn't serve well towards any sort of national unity right right um and in fact italy won't unite until until the 1870s it's about the same time as the as the german unification <laughs> but it really set them back in in terms of i their, can imagine yes yeah it, constant civil wars for decades yeah and, and it's one of those it's one of those continental wars that people don't know about that much because it is somewhat regional and well, and we've kind of talked about this on the show before where, you know, in the formation of these countries, it basically starts as several city-states or minor provinces that are usually have a lot of infighting or yeah. or then band together against some sort of external for, foe. Mm-hmm. No, that that is true. And, I mean, the, the Holy Roman Empire can hardly be called unified at this point. There it's some couple hundred principalities that are all yep. loosely affiliated. All, all over the place. <laughs> yep. You also have the problem of an economic depression forming uh, right. in Italy because all of its prosperity was based on that route from either the Byzantine Empire mm-hmm. uh, across the Mediterranean to northern Italy or from Palestine into Italy. Well, right now, Palestine isn't super friendly. Right. Uh, the Byzantine Empire is no more. Yes, is gone. Uh, the Ottomans decided to stop trading with they essentially cut off the Silk Road not not that long before uh, the discovery of the New World. In fact, that was one of the main impetuses. That's right. For, yeah. They were trying to find an alternate route. Well, yeah, because you, you could either try going across the Byzantine or uh, across the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. where they would not let you. They would harass you or at the absolute best charge exorbitant fees. But by that time, they had just stopped letting Europeans through. Or you could try going north Mm-hmm. Uh, across like the the steps of Russia, yeah, which was not a treacherous want to be <laughs> at it's best, a really bad place to be. Yeah, it's still very uh, untamed, very wild, very dangerous. And so most of the story of the 15th century is trying to find other ways to China because the whole Silk Road thing isn't working out so good anymore. Boy, I sure hope the Earth is round. <laughs> <laughs> it's critical to this plan. You you know that they knew the Earth was around, right? <laughs> I need you to tell me that you knew. That. Yeah, I know, I know. I need you to tell me that you knew that. Yes, knew yes, that I know. Since like the the Greek times. Yes, I know. Okay, thank you. I believed in you, but I just needed to hear the words, Miller. It was really important to me. <laughs> Listen, man, there's still people who don't know that. I know, and it's 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 a it's a horrible perpetuation of a of a lie. A meme. <laughs> I mean, it, I think I think of anything that you're going to learn out of out of uh, the Renaissance, it's that as much as they romanticized the classical period, mm-hmm. they were also right that there was a bunch of stuff that they forgot in oh, between yeah. the Renaissance <laughs> and, the, and the classical period, and some of the stuff was was math stuff. That was something that they were pretty good 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 at in Egypt and Greece and Rome, right? And that medieval Europe was not terribly concerned with. Yeah, pejoratively, the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah, and that's a terrible term, and, and you you said as much before you said it. But um, I know, I know. I'm, I'm trying to be... <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a term that's fallen out of favor, but it's also a term 
that comes from looking at history as having taken place in three periods, the classical era, the dark ages and the Renaissance and after mm-hmm. um, it's a, they, they saw the dark ages as this, this miserable era in between two golden ones. So well, uh, yeah. And it'd be easy to think of it in such a way, given that context. Yeah. As, as much as it's fallen out of favor, you can understand why it was initially conceived as such. Yeah. Things were so great. And then things were the dark ages for a while and then things were great again. <laughs> yeah. Really, the bigger problem is assuming that nothing happened in the Dark Ages. That's, yeah. that's where I really get my hackles yes, off. That, yeah. that is definitely not true. Charlemagne, anyone? <laughs> For example. But yeah, anyway, in terms of economic depression, the route through Italy stopped being important because of that, but also because especially Spanish and Portuguese and Dutch explorers had begun trying to figure out a way along the African coast, mm-hmm. you know, all the way to the south of Africa, around the tip and to India that way. And with the closing of the Silk Road, that actually became a more prosperous route than trying to figure something out over land. They saw it as temporary until they figured out a route across the sea. Sure, but it's a heck of a route. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's very difficult, but you don't have a Suez Canal yet. Suez yep, Canal I was going to say, Suez is a couple centuries off, right? <laughs> yep, and really you can't establish the trade route to the Indian Ocean without first sailing around Africa. After that, there is a way that you can go. Basically, you sail as far up the Red Sea as you can, and then you hire uh, caravans Overland. to carry your goods to the Mediterranean, and then you sail from there to, uh, to Italy. Right. But most people would just rather sail around Africa. Yeah, sailing's fast, and there's less chance to find women. Yep, and piracy is rampant on the north coast of Africa at this point in time. True, and yep. It's, it's a, it's a and, dangerous and, and, and. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lots of reasons. I mean, the, the Portuguese have spent the, the 15th century establishing little refueling trading posts all along the coast of Africa, and it got fairly easy to go that way, relatively speaking. Yes, yeah. And all of a sudden... This is like some town that used to be on Route 66 that just got bypassed by an interstate. Oh, yeah. Uh, Italy is no longer on the main route. Whoops. And it just kind of isn't as rich anymore. Yeah, going out of business. You know, unless people stopping by. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, <laughs> what's amazing to me about the Renaissance is this sort of uh, convergence of all these uh, really positive things at the same time. And right. then, yeah, it all kind of, kind of falls apart, but it all sort of falls apart around the same time too and you get this miraculous window of decades of time in between where everything's awesome well yeah and it's it's the perfect storm analogy where everything has to be just right and it was and so it has to come all together miraculously that's a requisite for it to happen yeah but it's so easy for one card in the house of cards to crumble and just bring it all tumbling down yep other things to come out of this like just to kind of situate ourselves in in history we are not that far away from the Reformation now. Yep. Uh, we're, we're actually very, very close. I, I was wondering, because uh, you had mentioned before that we're going to basically start at like the sacking of Constantinople and yep. the Crusades, mm-hmm. that those previous episodes that you've done, yeah. and we're going to end at like one of your other episodes. Yeah, and in a lot of ways... I was trying to figure out which one that might be. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways that um, the Reformation is used as one of the main markers for uh, the transition from sort of a Renaissance medieval era. Europe to the early modern period. What we start recognizing is modern history, and that's in, in scare quotes, but it's, it's, it's far more relatable to us, and it's far more uh, straightforward to see kind of uh, the progression of history right. from that yep. point forward because of these Renaissance ideals that have come up, namely humanism and secularism. Mm-hmm. European society as a whole 
secularizes because of the Renaissance. And just because the Italian Renaissance finishes doesn't mean that the Renaissance right. as an idea and as an ideal has stopped. It kind of moves north out of Italy, and then you get the Northern Renaissance, you get the English Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And those are all based on these ideas that travel out with these artists, with these intellectuals, with the, all of the yeah, uh, yeah. literary... Things, and... things were good there for long enough that now you're planting the seeds that are kind of spreading from that. Well, it's not as though no one read The Prince outside of Italy, for example, right? Yeah, no of one, course, and that's that what I mean. Out. Like, your people are hearing about all the stuff somehow that's mm -hmm. happening in uh, Italy. And then by the time that that's ending, basically all of these great artists, much like everyone came from Constantinople to Italy to kind of kickstart it, mm -hmm. now everyone in Italy is going elsewhere. Exactly. And kind of kickstarting their own. Exactly. But I mean, when you look at the when you look at the Reformation, one of the main ideas that's that's um, driving that movement is this sense of uh, personal agency being as important or more important than following kind of uh, top-down orders from a Dogmatic hierarchy. religion. Without the Renaissance, you don't get uh, Martin Luther, who believes that a person has as much ability to interpret the gospel on their own mm -hmm. with the you know intercession of the Holy Spirit, of course. Of course. You don't get him believing that unless he has some sense of personal agency, of secularism. Right. Um, because the the alternative to that is a world in which people like individuals don't have any capacity for any of that outside of a very strict hierarchy of the the universe mm -hmm. which involves the hierarchy of the church as part of it correct because as much as human beings sit at the very center of the great chain of being mm -hmm. within humans the church sits at the top and then kings and then nobility and then everyone else right and you have no chance to kind of better yourself to climb along that chain <laughs> there is zero mobility exactly you also need but and, and and all of this is so interconnected though right because you also need the printing press to have the reformation because you need a bible printed in the vernacular or else people can't interpret the word right. on their own because they can't read it because it's in latin or because <laughs> yes. they can't afford it they would have no option to <laughs> Uh, like all, all of this stuff is is working towards what we're going to end up calling the Enlightenment, which it, is still a ways out. Mm -hmm. this, that's 18th century stuff. Right. But the idea that people can be more than kind of pathetic, evil, twisted beings that are stuck with their lot in life and learn that's to just the way it is. It, yep. That that all starts disappearing because of the Renaissance and because of the ideas put forward uh, during the Renaissance. And yeah, it's, it's remarkable that, that, that convergence and it absolutely begs the question, you know, what, what would happen or, or what set of circumstances could possibly happen to replicate that in some sense going forward. I mean, that's a very speculative question, but I don't think you can really talk about the Renaissance without wondering if it's possible to happen again. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's inspiring. It is to, to see a period of history that's defined not by uh, warfare or by uh, political maneuvering or even by just terrible luck in terms of disease or, uh, you know, all of these um, completely world changing um, events, <laughs> inaccessible things, right? Like, yeah. like I, I, you know, I as a person, especially if I wasn't living in the past 150 years, have zero impact on politics Yeah, based on my circumstances. You know, it's only because of representative democracy and the fact that you know, 150 years ago that I'm a, 
a small know, voice. I, well, I'm 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 a white male. Yeah, that gets me that. the vote. And then in the past, you know, seventy or eighty years, depending on where you are, mm-hmm. you know, just as being an adult citizen gets me the vote. But even then, you know, people complain about the impact that one vote has, et cetera, et cetera. Right. During the Renaissance, that stuff didn't matter. <laughs> like, yes, it was an intellectual movement. Yes, it was an elite movement. Mm-hmm. There were absolutely people who went through a few generations that, you know, for some of the time, there was a bunch of wars between city-states. And then for a while, things were pretty good. Yep. And then... The war started again. The war started again. And they have no idea that all this stuff was happening. Yep. Day in, day out, the sheep stay the same. <laughs> it had no impact on their lives whatsoever. And I get, to some extent, why some historians would argue that that doesn't make the Renaissance worth studying. And I think that they couldn't be more wrong because even though it didn't have an impact on the people who were living with it concurrently, yeah, the the social impact that it had is is so much bigger. Yeah, and on everything since. <laughs> everything since. And I think that's an instance of a bit of a lack of understanding of social history and why it's important. Okay. I think what that ends up being is that, well, you know, in terms of life for someone living before the Renaissance and then during the Renaissance in these same places, nothing has changed for most people. And all we're talking about is the equivalent of us doing an entire episode on, for example, opera. Okay. Where eh, okay. most people don't care or aren't affected by it in exactly. a major way. <laughs> and I think what, what's happening there is they're equating the Renaissance with the paintings that come out of it, the, you know, the music that comes out of it. Uh, I see, the, I see. The patronage system as a whole the the mercantilist system that's that's giving all these people all that wealth mm-hmm. and i get that i do it's like this stuff happened but what, <laughs> Strong. what really matters out of the renaissance but is also inextricable from the art is yeah. the is the secularism is the humanism right and that's going to have a, a completely irreversible impact on of course western society i mean it's reductive but art reflects life and it does <laughs> and and if if all these great things are happening during this period in this place that's probably not a coincidence <laughs> you're absolutely right i completely agree with you and i i i'll be perfectly honest with you i presented that that argument as mostly as a straw man because neither of us agree with i was gonna it. say because it got my hackles up i mean <laughs> because now you're passionate about the subject and i love that you've been duped Oh boy! Duped into caring. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I was duped. I was, I was completely complicit. <laughs> more, more, I presented it as an alternative view to the way that we are definitely going to feel about this. I wanted to put it out there that some people honestly don't think that this is that big a deal, or shouldn't be considered that big a deal. That the focus should be put on uh, early modern Europe, where you get things like the Reformation movements, where you get. Mm. Um, uh, intellectual movements that kind of follow out of the the Renaissance humanism. Yeah, well, you get major political change happening on a fairly grander scale, right? <laughs> political, social, like uh, religious. There's there's so much that happens, right? right and, and it does more affect the everyday life of something. And I can understand that point, but that is such a it's such a straw man. It really. Is. Yep. Ugh. No, I know. I'm getting getting angry. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, Miller. It's all right. Um, passionate i think this is probably an okay place to leave oh, the renaissance i think so uh is there anything we didn't go over or anything that you wanted to circle back on or uh i don't think so i mean i think we tied it up in a nice little bow Beauty. well thank you so much for coming on absolutely it's always a pleasure to have you here go for number five <laughs> <laughs> soon miller soon. soon yeah
The Italian Renaissance may have ended with the Italian Wars, but the ideals that made the artistic movements possible migrated north into the rest of Europe, leading to great people and events like Shakespeare's modernization of the English language or Luther's reformation of Christianity. Its philosophies would lead to the scientific method and to the political signs of the likes of Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. It's easy to get carried away when looking for causality in history, and it's certainly quite possible that all these things would have happened without the, the Italian Renaissance. But what is not in dispute is that it was certainly made easier. Next time on HI101, it's the second anniversary of the launch of the show, so I thought we might do something a little bit different. Instead of a single topic, we're going to do an anthology episode of famous historical conspiracy theories. That episode will be up on June 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.